He made up his story. It was a phony story. Adam Schiff. So they don't talk about that anymore. You know, when this came out, it was quid pro quo. Well, there was none. The path that we are going on now in terms of an inquiry of impeachment is sad. This is nothing that anybody takes any satisfaction in. Folks, the Constitution gives the accused the right to remain silent. And clearly, Donald Trump has never read the Constitution. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I've made no secret of the fact, I've always wanted to say, I've made no secret of the fact. It's such an exciting run-up, but I have to warn you, it's kind of boring. I've made no secret of the fact that I'm disproportionately interested in how cultural artifacts like novels and movies speak to the sprawling stories of Thanos, I mean Trump. When trying to collect my thoughts, you guys know I'm as likely to let Do the Right Thing or The Avengers do the collecting of thoughts for me than to leave those sprawling thoughts to my own poor powers to add or detract. I've never once studied political science. What is political science? And yes, I did that wasteful PhD in English and thus am forced by trade to think that fiction as an organizing principle is better than fact. And fiction as fiction is the best. Study a lot of novels and poetry and you're way less likely to become enchanted by the thin, dry fiction with that Adderall effect that conspiracy kooks try to pass off as fact. What I mean is read your trollop today. And joined with me in that mission is Anila Merchandani. She is a true polymath, a computer coder with a keen interest in politics and culture. And she writes about both brilliantly on her blog, theoddpantry.com. I encountered Anila first on Twitter, where she's capable of cutting through the din that sometimes defines that website with her wicked originality, insight, and wit. Most recently, she called to my attention a piece she'd written about the 1957 movie 12 Angry Men, about Trumpites, and about how people change their minds. I'm really excited to talk to Anila, and she is joining me on the line now. Welcome, Anila. Hi, Virginia. It's nice to talk to you. We've been talking a little bit on Twitter, and you brought to my attention an article that you wrote that I found completely mesmerizing about the 1957 movie 12 Angry Men, which deals with a subject that seems to interest both you and me, how people change their minds. Yes, exactly. And the archetypes of people that keep a con going. That's how I would put it. Yeah. So bring everyone up to speed on this amazing movie that it's just passed into lore. Like people will describe someone as the Henry Fonda character in 12 Angry Men, the one principled member of the group that wants people to stick to the facts. But I don't think people have the movie fresh in their minds anymore. So give us a little plot summary and then tell us why you think it's relevant to our times. Right. So 12 Angry Men is a movie about a jury. The entire movie takes place, pretty much the whole of the movie takes place inside of a locked jury deliberation room where it's murderously hot. The fans don't work and they have one job, which is to decide whether an 18 year old who's being accused of murder Mm -hmm. is guilty or not guilty. The idea is that it has to be a unanimous verdict. So they all have to either convince each other to vote one way 
or just at least spend an hour or more deliberating on it to try to convince everyone. And the interesting thing about the case is that the prosecution laid it out so well that all 12 of them walk into the room convinced that the boy is guilty, Mm -hmm. including the Henry Fonda character, who's juror number eight. And they're all about to vote guilty and walk out in like a few minutes because, you know, everyone seems to agree it's a slam dunk case. Mm -hmm. But it's only the juror number eight, uh, Henry Fonda character, who says, you know, I'm just not comfortable sending a boy off to the electric chair on five minutes of deliberation. So I want to spend, I want all of us to spend at least an hour locked in this room talking about the case. And mm-hmm. that's how, that's the setup. That's how it begins. Just to feel and that you gave it your best, their best mind power. They are all 12 angry white men who look remarkably similar in shirt sleeves and ties. Um, they do. Yeah. I sometimes have trouble telling telling them apart, but you do such a nice job um, delineating the very clear differences because there's something quite allegorical about seeing these 12 disciples, 12 jurors come to a single subject from these very different sort of neurodiverse perspectives. Yeah, and different experiences, different ages. So that's, as you accurately pointed out, they're all white men wearing white shirts and ties, dressed pretty much identically. However, they're of different ages, different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. which becomes clear as the story unfolds. And at first, yes, there's sort of a nameless blob, you know, of 12 men thinking that a boy who you see at the beginning of the movie looking pretty distraught, is guilty, you know. And the boy is from the slums. So you have that dynamic set up, too. These are 12 powerful men sitting in judgment over a boy who's been treated. He's from the slums and he's been treated horribly all his life, right? So that's Mm -hmm. the setup. And the Henry Fonda character speaks up and says, I just need an hour. I want to... don't think that we should give up on this boy. He's just 18 without at least trying to unearth any doubts that anyone might have, you know, so he Mm -hmm. sort of draws it out, even though there isn't any doubt about it. And is he the appointed foreman? I can't remember. He is not. He's not. That's also interesting. And I know this will interest you, Virginia, but the appointed foreman is a man who is so focused on process that he's, again, sort of a little blind to the arguments, you know, like you can lose sight of what's being said and what's being debated because you're so focused on making sure, well, are we voting by ballot? Are we, you know, what order are we sitting in? And he's, that's the foreman, juror number one. He's not Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda sort of assumes a leadership role really just based on his moral and ethical standing standpoint, Mm -hmm. but he's not given a leadership role. What do we know about his background, Henry Fonda's? Um, He says he's an architect, and that's pretty much all we know. Mm -hmm. Um, The interesting thing is that we don't find out any of their names, except in the very last scene, we find out that Henry Fonda's name in the movie is Davis, but that's all we know. These are just 12 nameless men. Right, a jury of peers. All right, so what's this got to do with Trump? You know, I watched this movie a long time ago as a child, and and it was interesting to me. And, you know, it's a very striking movie. It has a very moral, uh, it's a fable, mm-hmm. and it strikes you in the way that fables do. But I happened to rewatch it just recently, and every character and every personality just spoke to me, because we see these people in the news. Mm-hmm. It was striking. I mean, we saw the leaders of the guilty faction. So it starts off with 11 men on the guilty side. 
side Mm -hmm. and only juror number eight, Henry Fonda, on the not guilty side, right? He says he he wants to wait a little bit, just have an hour-long discussion. Yes, he just wants to give the boy a chance, Mm -hmm. give him their best shot, right? And the first people that struck me were the leaders, essentially the ringleaders of the guilty faction. Mm -hmm. One of them is juror number 10, Mm-hmm. Uh, he's played by Ed Begley, and he is um, portrayed as a sort of, you know, old-fashioned bigot who can't really see people for who they are. He sees them for where they come from or their race or whatever. What he sees in the slum-dwelling boy is just someone who's like trash, you know. He's mm-hmm. from the slums. They're all like that. They all lie. He knows all about them, and there's absolutely no reason in his mind to give them give him the slightest benefit of the doubt. Which is so interesting because the unwillingness to entertain doubt, the sort of false certainty, is a yes. hallmark in your view of the racist in this. That he says something you quote this, I know them already. You know, it's it's yes. it sounds like Trump saying Mexicans, you know, they're sending rapists, they're rapists, without even the epistemological position is almost as like galling as the moral position, the ideological position. Just that I already know. I don't need to look. Right. And he's impatient with questioning. And he's not just impatient, but he's aggressive with anyone who might want to question that stance. Okay. So that's the Ed Begley. I call him the casual bigot. Yeah. And I call him a casual bigot because he hasn't given his, his bigotry doesn't come um, with a great deal of thought or ideology behind it. You Mm -hmm. know, it's almost like he tumbled into the bigotry, into that bigoted stance. Well, he's from the slums. You know, what Mm -hmm. else you need to know? Mm-hmm. And um, and I see a lot of that in Trump. Of course, we've seen him talk about Mexicans as rapists, you know, and, and, and not only that he says this stuff, but he says it with a certain air of, um, of absolute certainty, unquestioning certainty mm-hmm. and confidence. So this is one half of Trump, right? Mm-hmm. So there were two jurors that I thought when you put them together, you essentially get a Trump character, a mm-hmm. Trumpian character. One was Ed Begley, the juror number ten, and then you had uh, then you have juror number three, who's played by Lee J. Cobb, and he is another very interesting character. He, I wouldn't call him a casual bigot mm. because really, what seems to drive him is a sort of. Um, authoritarian mindset. Right away, you know, in the beginning of the film, he makes the case for almost as if this entire um, operation of, you know, the jury and the deliberation is all pointless and senseless. And if it were just up to him, he would have, as he says, slapped down tough kids like that without giving them due process, essentially. I think he says right before they started any trouble, right? So he's preemptively, and he says, I mean, Fonda says, execute them. He'd he'd kill them in advance of having committed any crimes, not even without due process, knowing that they hadn't yet. And that is, I don't know, I, I mean, there are sort of shades of Stephen Miller in that speech, the inaugural speech he wrote for Trump, the carnage um, stops now, meaning, in fact, the carnage starts now, meaning we're going to um, be now prosecuting undocumented workers and, and um, I don't know, he hints at people of color in Chicago whom he holds responsible for all kinds of crimes. And I'd slap those tough kids down before they started any trouble. Yeah, you're right. He's, a, he's different from the Begley character. Yeah. He's not just a casual bigot. He has, so there's two things about him that are interesting. One is that authoritarian mindset that 
mm-hmm. you and I sort of recognize, not just in Trump, but you're right, and Stephen Miller as well, and really in the group that Trump has gathered around him. I mean, you can even talk about Stephen Bannon, you know, in the, along the same lines. But And also, you know, that authoritarian mindset I've read, you know, scholars have done studies on this, that that is a huge part of what attracts people to despots like Trump. Mm. And so that is a really key fact about this um, juror number three, Lee J. Cobb character. But there's actually another half to him, which is equally interesting, which is that he's driven by resentment. Ah, You know, that resentment, the bitterness of various things that have happened in his own life are driving, are sort of like eating him up inside. And he reacts against this, you know, probably innocent boy who is not connected to him in any way. But he he has his own son that he's extremely resentful about. And he takes all of that resentment out on this stranger, essentially. Mm. And that resentment is another personality trait that I sort of identified in Trump. Because how much of what Trump does and says is driven by his resentment of our prior president. So much of his policy appears to be driven by a sense of resentment against what Obama did, what he stood for, the Nobel Prize he got. And so that was interesting. And there's one last character trait, which actually I didn't mention, but it's that sense of toxic masculinity that he projects. He does not like the rules. He's sort of extrajudicial idea of exactly of of, exactly. Um, of v- aggression. That you know, he reminds me a little bit of. I know everyone's so down on Aaron Sorkin right now, but in any case, you know that guy that says you all can rest on your laws, but I need to be able to work extrajudiciously to keep command, to keep control among my people. And so, talk about rules all you want, but I'm the one keeping us safe. Right, and yeah. I would put it like it's not just rules, but it's rule of law, right, Ah, that he's speaking up against. But before we go to his foil, which is the immigrant, right, these three things put together, I feel like pretty much pin Trump into a box, right? Like that's what Trump is. He's a casual bigot. He's filled with resentment from various, I don't know, various life histories, life stories that he's had against the elite, against Obama, who knows what. And he's authoritarian. He doesn't believe in the rule of law. There are two other people that come to mind that fit the Lee J. Cobb model. And one of them, I think you bring up political correctness later. But I always think about John Kelly and Mike Flynn. So Uh two men whose sons are very present to them just like the Cobb, the Cobb character. Right. You know, Kelly lost a son and Flynn's son is kind of a, he's like his id. We're told that Flynn took his deal partly to avoid prosecution of his own son. So who knows? But Kelly always said that he wanted to run Gitmo uh, in a way that wasn't politically correct anymore. In other words, <laughs> that didn't, that wasn't, I mean, I, I think you could almost hear him as saying constitutionally correct. That didn't right. adhere slap to, them around a bit. Yes, exactly, because that's how you really keep order. You know, with torture, with um, you know, with executions, uh, just a little bit of sadism, um, and um, and you get that that Mike Flynn at some point decided to coin lock her up, and he'd worked within military discipline for a long time, and then he took to freestyling with the Turks. And both of those seems like saying, I've been confined by these rules. I'm like some kind of Nietzschean overman that, like, the rules can't hold me anymore. So we've got a lot of Trumpites in that picture, and certainly Trump himself. Trump himself, and because of what he is, he attracts people of that 
tight. You know, when he was running, I almost used to think that he's holding out almost like a sign. Here, I'm open for business, yes, you know, yeah. almost like an advertisement to the mercenaries and the authoritarians and the despots pretty much around the world, but specifically in, in the U.S. Like, I'm open for business. Come do business with me. He's surrounded by juror 10s and juror 3s. There's certain people that saw themselves in him whose voices we hadn't heard, uh, you know, as much in the, in the mix. Or they're certainly very high in the mix right now. All right, so let's get to the archetype of the Trump supporter. So not like, not right in there with not Trump. Not Trump himself. Exactly. So one, someone that might go to the rallies. This is also very interesting because I noticed this one archetypical character who is looking to Trump. I mean, so I'm shifting back and forth from the movie to real life. He's looking for permission from Trump. And because someone like Trump, someone powerful, is giving him permission to be immoral. This is the source of his adoration of Trump. So the uh, one juror that I found fitting this archetype was juror number seven. Yep. He's portrayed so wonderfully, wonderful actor, Jack Warden. Mm -hmm. his, um, he's a Yankees fan. He's a salesman. <laughs> and he wants to get to the game. So he's in a mad rush to get mm -hmm. out of the room. And uh, he wants to decide in five minutes on the guilt, right? So he wants to vote guilty, sit there for five minutes and get the heck out of there, right? Mm -hmm. Henry Fonda gives him an implied moral rebuke. He yeah. says, you know, I wouldn't want to send a boy to the electric chair just after spending five minutes talking about his guilt. Mm -hmm. And juror number seven takes that rebuke. He feels it and he reacts mm -hmm. against it mm -hmm. the way we see so many people on Twitter and elsewhere in current contemporary life react to that moral rebuke by calling it politically correct. Right. As if it's a question of style or manners. Right. As opposed to having some moral teeth to it, the politically correct thing. Instead, you know, instead it sounds like it's put up your pinky when you hold your teacup or whatever. There's some charisma to see a Yankees fan covered with sweat, as this character is, bored in the room and wanting to go do something fun and just thinking, oh, look at this pompous Henry Fonda, you know. I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy that wants to get to a game. And you're being so, it's like, you've got to stick up your ass kind of thing. Exactly. He's definitely charismatic, you know, and he's um, got that really nice, extroverted, affable way about him. The one thing that he lacks is he doesn't seem to even grasp the ethical stand that the Henry Fonda character takes. Yeah. You know, he's at one point, he says, uh, what are you getting out of this? And he says, you know, are you doing this for, uh, you know, did someone bump you on the head? Like he's yeah. unable to grasp that there might be more to it. And at another point, he tells Henry Fonda almost appreciatively, he says, you know, you're the master of soft sell. Mm. Is it the entire argument that Henry Fonda is making is a sales pitch, a sales pitch. Yeah. And he says, you know, soft sell, because he in that phrase, soft sell, he acknowledges that Henry Fonda is a bit of a you know, like a dork, kind of. Yeah, yeah, right. Although that, it could be crafty also. It's sort of like he has a soft touch, but he's still kind of pickpocketing everyone. So if, in fact, the Fonda character is trying to sell Jack Warden's character on the not guilty verdict, and we know that Fonda has already said he thinks he's guilty, but he still wants to give it an hour. So it's not totally clear that he starts out as an ideologue trying to bring everyone around with a sales pitch. In any case, if right. we grant that, he can get this Jack Warden character to the Yankees game as quickly. You know, if he comes around to not guilty, they can decide that 
quickly also. They could have. Yes, exactly. But there's ringleaders on the other side, right? That are personally invested in the guilt of this boy. Right. Yeah, that's juror number 10 and juror number three, the Ed Begley and Lee J. Cobb character. They are personally invested in the guilt of the boy. That's what makes it an ideological battle as well. It's Mm -hmm. not as simple as, well, we all decide not guilty and move on, you know. The New York Times had some Trump voters write in, this was a while ago, not this most recent interview with would-be swing voters, but write in to say who they were going to vote for this time, and each one did a little essay. And it was amazing. They said, yeah, I voted for Trump last time, and I was really enthusiastic about him, but I think I'm going for Elizabeth Warren this time, Kamala Harris this time, Tulsi Gabbard this time. And Hmm. they reminded me a little bit of this guy, like, really, what do you want me to say on this one? I'll change. You know, I just got I got to get out of here and I don't I don't want to stand on ceremony and, you know, okay, you're right. You got me. He wasn't that a great a candidate, but I'm going to I was enthusiastic last time and now I'm bored and move on to Elizabeth Warren. They weren't really ideologically attached to Trump, but they're fans. He's a fan, too. I mean, he's because he's a Yankees fan, this guy. If you place yourself in this film, he feels that moral rebuke from Henry Fonda. Imagine the adoration he would direct to someone like a ringleader who gave him the permission to say, you're not wrong. You know, it's Henry Fonda who's being all politically correct and wrong. You're not wrong. Of Mm. course, he's guilty. You can decide his guilt in five minutes. And I feel like that psychic permission that someone like Trump Mm. gives to people like this who are not thoughtful, who want to just get to the game is really precious to them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, although a, a Warren has also, or I should just add that someone like Warren, I think, has done a nice job of engaging those voters on the grounds that, like, this is just common sense here. You know, these mm-hmm. these people aren't paying their taxes. Like, take one look at it. They should be paying their taxes, and you all should be paying less. It flatters the intelligence the way she explains things and makes them so blindingly obvious. And I think that could, for for this type, go to... I mean, it's never complex when she talks. No, it, you're right about that. She she tickles your common sense organ, essentially. Yeah. That has a lot of power. She has a lot of plans, but she doesn't necessarily pull them out. She says things in a very simplistic way. And she's now framing it as corruption, which might get to people who are even maybe ideologically bound to the right. You know, mm-hmm. everyone can agree that corruption is a problem, no matter where you lie in the spectrum. One of the members of the guilty faction, not the ringleaders, as you say, is the character played by Jack Klugman. And where does he fit on the scale of would-be Trump supporters? Who's he analogous to? And also, how does he set himself up to have his mind changed? So um, one of the things I want to just point out is that it was only Henry Fonda, the one character who Mm -hmm. stood up for the not guilty. Yeah. And I think that kind of shows you how easily the bigoted and authoritarian viewpoints can win, at least at first, and how easy it is for most people to simply go along. And not all of them are bad people. They're all good people. They're thoughtful people. And yet it took some teasing for them to see the right path, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a lesson to us, too, is that their minds are changeable, which was very encouraging. Right. That's true. They seem at first so tenacious. Everything is going against. It seems like you've got to turn a giant ship around. And then when they start, when cracks open up or (laughs) mixing metaphors, but when they're, you know, some movement, then they all switch. And that, I mean, that's the the optimistic reading of this film that you give. So he is, the Klugman character 
did grow up in a slum, also grew up very poor. He did. And he is initially on the guilty side. Um, and he's convinced by some of the arguments, but you can tell that there's interaction after interaction where the rest of the jurors who did not grow up in a slum are constantly othering him mm. because they speak so easily about, especially the casual bigot, the Ed Begley character, they speak so easily and derogatorily about slum dwellers. You know, like, well, they're all like that, or they come, you know, they use that language of infestation, like, uh, they come crawling out of the slums. What do you expect? You know, they don't even know it. You know, in the one minute they're drunk and then the next minute someone's in the gutter and mm -hmm. they don't even feel it. And they go on at length, especially the um, Ed Begley juror number 10 character. And after a little bit, it just starts to wear on him. And mm -hmm. who can blame him? He's risen from the slums. And at one point he says bitterly, I have trash in my backyard. Perhaps you can still smell it on me. When he switches, he's one of the earlier ones to switch his vote. But you can kind of sense that he, and this is really a tribute to the actors they picked. You can kind of sense, yes, he's convinced by the arguments, but he almost does it with a sense of self-fulfillment. Like, mm -hmm. now I'm on the right side. I'm going over to the side where I'm not hated. I mean, what's strange about sometimes the position occupied by those who call themselves rational over and against political correctness. So political correctness is some fancy way of thinking. And rationality is like, if you see it plain, you know, women are like this. Women can't do math. Men can do math. And that's just because I'm saying it. I'm just speaking the truth. I'm, I'm clear. I see things clearly. I don't have biases. Or I don't have my own, uh, you know, emotional needs that need to be gratified, my triggers or whatever. But here you see the opposite, which is a guy who, and you liken him to Gregory Cheadle, who was the Trump supporter. Trump once called him my African-American. My African-American. Right. Yes, who did. sat around and, and heard Trump's racist rhetoric and it slowly ate him up inside. And then he left the Republican Party. So you have this character that he hears the slum dwellers trashed over and over again, criticized over and over again. And he identifies with the slum dwellers. But he doesn't seem to be making so much an emotional identification of if this child, is, I have to exonerate this, this kid, this boy in the slums because I was once that boy. More like, well, you know what? They're attacking him so savagely. And since I know that some people in the slums don't also commit murders, I don't think they are thinking clearly. I don't think they're thinking clearly. The race position, the subject position of him is to see them as deceived and irrational. Right. That is an interesting point that he that he has an inside view into the source of bigotry in their arguments. He can see through them, you know, like for a person who's new to this or is just approaching it on a shallow level, as you said, they might see it as the eminently logical position. Well, of course he did. You know, what's mm -hmm. the argument? But he can see through that argument into the into the illogic at the heart of it. Yes. Which is that he doesn't deserve condemnation. And, you know, and a great example of the kind of othering he faces is that uh, he faces suspicion from his own side, which is the guilty faction. At one point, they have a secret ballot and one person has switched their vote secretly mm -hmm. to the not guilty side. And the bigots in the team, the Lee J. Cobb and the Ed Begley character, instantly turn on the one person they know is from the slums, assuming that it was him. Right. So that classic suspicion that he faces also, I think, is faced by a lot of people who are not 
white men, you know, in the Republican Party today. I mean, it is amazing that someone like Gregory Cheadle or also Omarosa Manigal Stallman, she and Cheadle, they did stick around for a lot of racist rhetoric. And it may have been originally that, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, they stuck around, let's just say, longer than this character, this one who grew up in the slums in 12 Angry Men. I think they did. But, you know, I think there's different reasons. Omarosa had a personal relationship with Trump, right? Yeah, So that that's can right. um, subsume a lot of, um, you know, doubts that's that you might true. have about a person's public behavior. But on the other side, you know, the Republican Party, Trump took over the Republican Party. He was an outsider. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party still has a lot of a stash of, I would say, goodwill or uh, pe- from people who were just traditionally Republican, their families are Republican, and they give Trump the benefit of believing in all those, whatever the Republican principles are. And I think that's where the my African-American that he, mm. Gregory Cheadle comes comes in. Like mm-hmm. I, From what I've read, he seemed to be in favor of what he saw as the Republican platform, you know, and he gave Trump the benefit of of believing in that. And and then he, over time, and I've known people like this in real life too, is that they've fallen in line with Trump, but they haven't necessarily fallen in love with Trump. Hmm. So you say you've known people like this. How people, if people ch- will change their minds um, about Trump is extremely interesting, you know, in thinking about the next election, but in a larger way, thinking about whether we will remember this period where there was support for Trump, less support than for other presidents, but there's support nonetheless. We almost all of us know someone who still supports him. Um, will we remember this as a fever dream or will we remember this as, you know, a time when a certain faction of the population hardened um, on the far right and found in Trump a charismatic leader and they were able to sustain that or find another leader like him and, you know, kind of kept up a knot of 30 percent of the population for this new agenda that we hadn't thought of as part of the American way. You know, uh, interestingly, yes, I think all yes to all of it. But Uh I think more than anything, we'll remember it as a stock bubble. Uh, And I'm wondering if that's really the way to think of it. Yeah, because And I don't want to digress, but there's another novel that I would tell everyone to read that to really understand what we're going through in the Trump era. Mm -hmm. Um, And the name of that book is The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope. Yes, I love that book. Yeah, and it's so, I mean, even to a greater extent, perhaps, than this movie, which is hard to believe, but it so accurately pinpoints the kind of um, stock mania, the stock bubble that can keep a con man afloat. Yes. And that's really because everyone knows at their core that this is a con man, but they all know that as long as they all keep the illusion up, the riches will flow perhaps indefinitely, right? Yeah. I have started to think of Trump as a stock bubble, and I think of the Republicans in Congress as just willing to keep the fraud going as long as they possibly can. Yeah, because also when it stops, when the tide goes out or <laughs> whatever those market, uh, you know, references are, my metaphors are, there's a lot to be reckoned with. 
And there's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's the it's the way Trump has to stay in office, has to stay popular, has to smear Biden, lest he be indicted and lest he have to confront everything. Yeah, like Nunes said that one time that we caught him in secret camera, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, that secret recording. If we don't vote Republican, all of this goes away. You know, so I think yeah. he knew he knew that you have to keep that fraud going by all of just basically papering over your doubts for yes. the moment, even yes. though you might have them. Yeah. But, you know, stock bubbles do, do break. crash. They do crash. And yep. that really happens when you feel like someone else is going to sell the stock. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's not so much about yeah. your own doubt. You feel like others are leaving, deserting the ship. Again, to mix my metaphors, we've seen uh, well first Justin Amash, um, but then well, and and Gregory Cheadle, but uh, Jeff Flake um, has said now that he doesn't. Th- he thinks what the whistleblower has said on this. Uh, I guess Ben Wittes wants to call it l'affaire Ukraine. So the Ukrainian affair. Oh, is that, is affair, that the new name? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's harder to say than l'affaire Russe. L'affaire Ukraine. Is I like Ukrainian one. I love Ukrainian one. I know, it's so good. But, you know, Flake has said there is some there there. This is not nothing, what the whistleblower has said. And those are the small things that you can imagine someone in a trading pit, bye, 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 bullish on Trump, suddenly looking over. Is that guy selling? Is that guy selling? We've got to get to, and this is where things get a little closer to home for Trumpcast. Um, you even have room for Max Boot and David Frum. In your uh, among your jurors, say what you say about them. So one of the last holdouts in the guilty faction is this mm-hmm. character, um, juror number four, and he's this um, very coldly rational. You know, he barely flinches throughout the entire movie. Very logical man. He's played by E.G. Marshall. He's convinced of the boy's guilt. He has his reasons. He's mm-hmm. not driven by bigotry. He's not driven by. Uh, you know, resentment. He's not driven by wanting to get to the game. He just thinks the boy is guilty mm-hmm. and he has his reasons. Mm-hmm. So he is, in a weird way, I found him to be a sort of sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. He's not meant to be sympathetic, but I understood him in a way that, um, you know, he ju- you just you want him to be right sometimes because he's not given to emotion. Yeah. He believes, along with the Lee J. Cobb character, that the boy is probably guilty and that the not guilty faction is giving in to their emotions. Hmm. Right. So that's his standpoint. Right. But at a certain point, through the combined efforts of all the other people in the room, he begins to develop a doubt. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting moment because you can see in his very calm, usually calm face that he's shaken. Yeah. He um, starts to sweat. There's a trickle of sweat that runs down his forehead. He looks, he takes off his glasses and rubs his nose. Yeah. You know, you can see in his uh, behavior that he's shaken. But because he has integrity, he doesn't hold on to that position a minute longer than he's convinced that it's wrong. And in that, he really reminded me of some of the never Trumpers. And Max Boot, especially. I mean, that's a that's a perfect example. Once he decided on the on what he perceived to be the merits of the argument that there was something wrong with the Republican Party, something deeply wrong, and he was almost made embarrassed by his past commitments and took pains immediately to switch them around. So he had to feel 
uncomfortable with his decisions first. Like you say, he starts sweating. He needs to think of himself as rational. And there's always a desire to persist with your old paradigm because it's feeling consistent is also a goal for, for many of us. But feeling rational finally became a priority that he followed his reason. To me, that also does make I mean, Max Boot is so methodical when he describes, you know, looking back into the origins of the Republican Party and deciding that it had been racist from the start. That's a lot to admit. Yeah. And I read his book and he was unsparing in the book towards himself, towards the things he said, uh, you know, how easily he spouted. Mm -hmm. And I think this was his own word, how easily he spouted the party platform. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really respect that. And I saw someone that I respect in this particular juror, even though he was one of the last holdouts on the guilty faction. And then you put also David Frum in that category. I also want to ask you, and because I have not seen the movie recently, I should admit, um, is it, is the, does the movie take a position on whether the kid is guilty or not? Interestingly, Virginia, it really doesn't. So it's possible that they all, because as you say, the evidence is very good. The boy has said he's going to murder his father. He's seen across the street by a witness, right, sort of threatening him or running after him. And then they're invisible for a little while. I think, you know, a- along with the rest of the jurors, I, st- you know, the evidence seemed excellent. And I went along with um, the jurors in their deliberations to think, well, maybe he didn't. But it's hmm. that that's almost beside the point in the movie, right? He, it, The point of the movie is... Um, as the immigrant, the one immigrant of the group, so eloquently put it, he the, the one immigrant of the group, actually, he reminded me of Kizer Khan holding up the Constitution. Ah, yes. You know, I, I didn't mention gold that star in father. the article. But yeah, it was really stark that yeah. um, the immigrant essentially holds up the Constitution and says, I find this very admirable in your society that um, – we should all be written letters to, to Mm -hmm. come and collect as strangers Mm -hmm. and deliberate on the guilt of a stranger and give it our best thought and our best effort. And, um, you know, so that, that's the point of the movie. He's a great foil to the authoritarian who wants to uh, get rid of the rule of law from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The immigrant is a great foil to that. The Khan to Trump, essentially. Yes. And also the four congresswomen, um, who, you know, Trump's treatment of them and they're, they're uh, all American citizens. One is naturalized, but they are because he keeps painting them. Trump keeps painting them as immigrants. They keep speaking yes. for, th- for that, if, having to speak to that experience. You know, it was the treatment of those four women that changed Anthony Scaramucci's mind, he says, because... Oh, is that what changed him? Yeah, okay. he, he says that was the that was really the moment. I mean, that he was skeptical of various times. That was really the moment because he remembered his grandmother as an immigrant being treated, um, being treated badly. And then it was also uh, what changed Gregory Cheadle's mind, the so-called My African American. That somehow seemed going too far. You realized in that moment that we're all... Trump's enemies at bottom. Like we all to him come from somewhere else, namely not his own 
mind. <laughs> or, you and know. we don't serve and we don't serve his interest and we don't in one way or the interest. other. Isn't yeah. that interesting that there's always one event, one hook that changes someone? Yeah. For example, with Joe Walsh, it was the Helsinki summit. Yes. Where he uh, sided with Putin. And it's, you just, you, and this is the power of changing someone's mind. Mm -hmm. You don't know what it's going to be, but it's worth planting seeds all over of, you know, of truth or of ethics. And you never know what's going to take. Anila Merchandani is a coder who writes and a writer who codes. Thanks so much for being here, Anila. Thanks, Virginia. It was great chatting. So that's our show for today. What did you think? Write some thoughtful things to us on the internet, known for thoughtful, reasoned conversation. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And if you're still here, why not put all this trouble to use and go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member if you're not already. You'd get to skip the ads and there's no day like today. Our show today was produced by the great Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob and Jeremy Dalmas. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.